All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel chapter 22. We're just going to read the first two verses. Where the Bible says, David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave Adullam. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither there to him. And everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him. And he became a captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Verse number 2 in 1 Samuel chapter 22 has always been for me an element of what I find to be humorous in the Bible. We expect in life that when you're on a dangerous mission or you're going to become a great leader in your country, that you're surrounded by the very best of the best. And though there may be reasons why we see these, including his own family, that came to him and came around him that's not in the immediate text I just find humor in the fact that the people that came to him besides his own family were the ones that were distressed they were in debt they were discontented and whatever else may have been there and they gathered themselves around him this is number one what we don't expect when we're going to become a leader as David certainly was one of the greatest kings, if not the greatest king of Israel. And we expect to be surrounded by the best of the best, to have a winning side. But God, it seems, always chooses the least of the least so that his power will be shown and no one should be tempted to believe that they did this on their own. So I want to tell you the story about the uh, bellboy who received a very unusual tip for his services. The year was 1922, a man who had just checked into the hotel and the bellboy that was taking all of his gear, all of his luggage, being so helpful, was waiting for his tip. Well, the man didn't have any money on him. So he got a piece of paper and he wrote these words. A calm and modest life brings more happiness than the pursuit of success combined with constant restlessness. That piece of paper was the tip given to a bellboy in 1922. Don't know what he thought about it at the moment. But that's not what you're working for. These words on a piece of paper, which happened to be pretty wise. But just a year or two back, not that long ago, this piece of paper sold for $1.3 million because the words were penned by Albert Einstein. He had just found out that he won the Nobel Prize, didn't have anything on him to give to the bellboy, and this is what he gave him. Let me read it to you again, because it certainly speaks to me and has been my belief all along. A calm and modest life brings more happiness than the pursuit of success combined with constant restlessness. Wise words from a wise man that we would be wise to follow. Do you seek great things for yourself? Jeremiah asked the question. He said, seek them not. A calm and modest life. However, as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we are confronted with surprises known as trials and tribulations. We read about it in the book, but it takes many of us by surprise. And so I want to talk to you about distress, 
Then I want to talk to you about discouragement. But I also want to talk to you about deliverance. Because there's a pattern. If you study the biographies of the great men and women of the Bible, and most of them, let's face it, are men, but there are some great women recorded in here as well. There's a pattern in their lives. It's not always put down on every single biography, but we see it in the more lengthy biographies like David's life, Moses as well, and Abraham and so on. There is a pattern of a distress, crisis, and then there comes a period for many of them of either depression, discouragement, faith that starts to lack, weakness, but always for those who trusted in Christ and trust in the God of Israel, the God of our church, there comes deliverance. You must understand that this pattern not only runs throughout the Bible with the biblical characters, but it also runs through your life. If you study yourself, you'll see them. And, oddly enough, it runs through the life of every person on the planet. That doesn't equate to salvation or trust in Christ, but it's a pattern in human nature. For instance, Herbert Benson, Dr. Herbert Benson, now deceased, both a medical doctor, cardiologist, and scientist, who has studied the relationship between stress and relaxation and all types of diseases and things that it can produce. Some of his works are really, really good. You should read them. Herbert Benson, MD. He has a book called The Breakout Principle. And the subtitle is How to Achieve the Natural Trigger that Maximizes Creativity, Athletic Performance, Productivity, and Personal Well-Being. And he writes these words, The breakout principle refers to a powerful mind-body impulse that severs prior mental patterns and, even in times of great stress or emotional trauma, opens an inner door to a host of personal benefits, including greater mental acuity, enhanced creativity, increased job productivity, maximal athletic performance, spiritual development. The most significant phrase in the above definition is, quote, severs prior mental patterns. Many, if not most, of the problems we face in terms of blocked creativity and productivity, subpar athletic performance, flawed health, or even stunted spirituality can be traced back to unresolved, destructive, or negative thought patterns such as nagging anxieties, stress-related emotional baggage, or circular obsessive mental tapes. Now you may be wondering why am I quoting from a secular source that is talking about basically about human achievement. It's because I like to quote from sources that are non-biblical, even though Benson talks about well, in his own words, God and the things that science can't explain for a breakout, what he calls a breakout. I like to quote from non-biblical sources when, and so many of them do, endorse biblical concepts. You're constantly told to read your Bible and read your Bible and read your Bible and read your Bible. And the more you do, and if you observe life, observe yourself, you'll see patterns of God's working in the lives of his people both in the past and in the present, and in yours. So for those of you today who may be in a position of distress, and I know there's some of you, if not many of you, or you're in a position of discouragement, and again, there'll be some of you, if not many of you, 
begin to set your sights on deliverance because if science can say this is a phenomenon that they have proved in the laboratories at Harvard Medical School and Harvard University and other places, if it can happen in the normal course of life to people, how much more will it happen to those who trust in the Son of God? What is your expectation? You're distressed, or you've been distressed, you're discouraged, or you've been discouraged, or in the, perhaps in the future you may become discouraged, but set your sights on deliverance, that this will turn for good as long as I keep my eyes on Jesus and don't forget the things that he has said and done and promised. Standing on the promises, we just sang it, standing on the promises of God because they're promises. I told you my father had things that he always stood on. Number one, that his word was his bond, that he was a man of his word. And I always found my dad to be a man of his word. It's a shame that there aren't more like that today, but I have learned that and I am a man of my word. For better or worse, what I say is what I mean. So we come to this pattern or phenomenon in human nature, in life in general. But specifically, I relate it to what we find in the biographies of the people in the Bible. And here we have David, who, again, as we know, is going to become, I said, one of his, no doubt, the greatest king Israel has ever known. That would include his son Solomon. David had achieved what we'll just loosely call great success, prophesied on them, but achieved great success. But like you... Did he ever expect it would come at such an expense of all the trials and all the things he would go through? And I don't know because the Bible doesn't seem to say, but I don't know if any of these patriarchs of the Bible knew up front, the same as you and the same as me, that if we actually follow Jesus, the Jesus here that we find in the Bible, we're going to go through periods of distress, we're going to have moments of discouragement and or depression, but as we trust in Christ, they have a purpose. And that purpose is to make us stronger. What Herbert Benson calls a breakout experience, and he names many areas of life, is true. And I've mentioned this to you before, and I want to mention it again. Though we put our trust in Christ and can do all things through Christ, and in John 15 we read about Jesus saying, without me you can do nothing, it's referring to the spiritual life. But the fact of the matter is, people have accomplished some great things just on their own. Just on the innate gifts that God gives to people in general. And you say, well, what, how could you say that? Because Jesus said he causes his reign to fall on the just and on the unjust. His gifts and talents are the same, but they're not related to spirituality. I'm just simply saying that here's a scientist slash medical doctor who is endorsing a pattern that we see in the Bible. And... If you've not yet been in distress since you followed Christ, you will be. I'm saying that to you, not to be cruel, but to prepare you ahead of time so that you remember. It's going to come. It has to come. Because we were taught to embrace the cross. And anything that you know, as I said earlier, or need to know, will know in the future about the cross, is not a pleasant experience. It's just that it produces the fruit of the Holy Spirit Hallelujah. and peace and joy and love and all of these things. 
And when you have it, you are very grateful. God is taking you through the test, like I just read to you this letter here. It's designed for a purpose. It's designed to produce good fruit with good character. What we're after is to know God. Not just words from his book, but to know him. This is eternal life, Jesus said. That they might know you and your son whom thou hast sent. This is the purpose. That's why we're here. If I were to ask you today, do you know God? And so many of you here have been regulars for decades. Oh yes, I know God. But let me further elaborate by saying, I'm not talking about simply knowing what the Bible says on certain passages and pages that you're familiar with. I mean, do you actually know the author? And how will you know that you know the author? Because there'll be an attending strength and as you gain experience, you realize that no matter what you go through, you are going to come back up to the surface. And you are going to endure, and you are going to survive, and you will be and are now more than conquerors through him that loved you because you know him, not just the words of his book. Amen. And of course, I'm not diminishing the words of the book because we know God through the book, without the book. You can only know generalities like Benson and others have pointed out. Many things I could point out from books I've read that are just general principles of life. Does not mean you have the gift of eternal life. Just simply pointing out the goodness and greatness of God. Are you in distress today? Have you come in here saying, Pastor, I'm in a situation I don't know what to do. When Jehoshaphat was in that position, when he was surrounded by the enemy, Another great king, by the way, godly king, surrounded by the enemy, he makes a petition to God and he says, we have no might against this great company which comes up against us. Listen, neither know we what to do. Well, he knew the law and he knew what was written at the time of the Bible. He knew those things, but he didn't know what specifically to do against the enemies of Israel come to kill them. We have no might against this great company that comes up against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. And that, my friend, I hope describes you today. If you're in distress, well, if you're in debt, you may have gotten there by your own lack of wisdom, however you got there. God is able to deliver you from every single circumstance. Every single circumstance that you are in. I knew a man that was in great debt years and years ago, a friend of mine, now gone home to be with the Lord. He was a vice president, Bank of New York. And uh, fell into a depression, used his credit cards to make himself feel good by buying shoes and suits and sweaters and whatever else. And he racked up a tremendous amount of debt. And then on top of it all, he got let go from his position. He had no job. Wound up with his family living in the basement of his mother-in-law's house and he was even more depressed. Sat in my office, this is back in the Bronx, sat in my office. I didn't know what to tell him to do. I'm not a financial wizard. And at that time, I knew less about the Bible than I know at the moment. But this much I did know, that God is able to deliver you. And to make the longer story shorter, another bank, a very prestigious bank, picked him up because they liked his resume and so on. This is after I told him, God is able to deliver you. He had a lot of debt. I mean, tens of thousands of dollars of debt just on a credit card. So it wasn't like, oh, something happened to me. He did it to himself. But he was depressed. And now more depressed. And so a company, a bank, 
calls him up, they want him to work for him, and he negotiates a deal. We will move you here, give you a down payment for a new home, get out of the basement, pay your debt, and got a raise. How does this happen? Because we're all so clever? Because Pastor Ray is that clever? No, because I just know enough how to repeat what the Bible says, that he is able and he's willing to deliver you from all your troubles. And you and you alone must be the person to believe that. It's no good if I believe. I believe for me. And that's the only one I control. I don't control any other human being on the planet from my wife and children and grandchildren on out. I just control myself. And I know that I know that I know that I know. And now by many long years of experience, as I mentioned to you today, this is approximately the 5,400th sermon I've preached in this city over 36 years. And even more if you go back another, what is it, 10 years of preaching. Preached a lot of messages. And I've learned one thing. Just tell the people what the book says. Let them have faith in what God can do and have a testimony to be able to stand up and say, this is what God has done for me. He took me from the dregs. He took me from the guttermost to the uttermost because I believed him. And some of you are stuck. You're stuck in a rut because you haven't yet reached out to the hem of Jesus' garment and said, if I can but touch him, I shall be healed. Amen. Shall be healed. I go back to Herbert Benson for just a moment. They've proved other scientists have to, in their own fields, without the Bible, without God, without Christ. The healing powers that reside, well, let me give it to you this way. You cut your finger, the body immediately goes to heal it. So don't look at me like, what are you, a heathen? God has put good things into human beings. Doesn't mean he's not going to judge them. It just means that he's put good things because he's good. Amen. Anyway, they've proved that some of these diseases can be eradicated, mitigated altogether just by certain natural processes. I say how much more if we have the Jesus of the Bible. Amen. If you have a ceramic Jesus somewhere or a marble Jesus, that's not going to help you. You need the Jesus who says, I am alive, I am risen. And it's not just simply, as they say, preaching to the choir. It's actually having a testimony. Now listen to me. I would venture a guess, if we had some way to do this, that I have suffered from more depression than most all of you here today. I mean, how do you say that? We never saw you depressed, of course not. I don't come to the pulpit and say, I want to tell you how down I am today. And all this, and just go through that week after week. I'd have nobody here. <laughs> but you may say, wow, you haven't suffered as much as me. And maybe not. But I've been depressed a lot. But I know my God, and I know what this book says, that they that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. I've learned this principle, that from distress to discouragement or depression, it leads to deliverance if you continue to believe in God. Thank you, God. True. Yeah, it's in the book. We live in what has been called, and I've brought this to you before in times past. We live in a century, well, now it's 21st century. The 20th century was known by many as the age of anxiety. In 1948, the poet W.H. Auden wrote a long, long poem that's actually a short book, and it's called The Age of Anxiety. It's about four people who meet in a bar, 
and three are men and one is a woman and of course they're drinking and they're discussing the ills of the age and this is 1948 we just won the second world war they're talking about the isolation the loneliness the advance of well we'll call it technology which is certainly not comparable to the advance we've had today and what is produced in human beings in forms of isolation and loneliness and other things i mean how many of us have had the experience where you're sitting around with a group, a family, a group of people, and they're all looking at their phone. You're really, in one way, not together. Please do not look at your phone when I'm up here preaching. Now, I've seen it, and I just not called it out. But once we get into the shock program, then I'm going to call it out. <laughs> get off the phone. Put it away when you come into this sanctuary, unless you're a very important person that's on call. We recognize that. Shut off the mms, the buzzers, the bells, the birds. Shut it off and pay attention to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because yeah. only Jesus, your cell phone's not going to deliver you. Jesus will. Yeah. He will because he said so. And God is not a man that he should lie. Nor the son of man that he should repent. He's God. Now the question is, do you believe it? I believe it. And I've seen it for 46 years. I've seen it again and again. This pattern in my own life. Stress comes into my life. Stress turns into distress. Or it can. It doesn't have to, but it can. So we'll just simply stay with stress is introduced. You're under pressure. You're agitated, frustrated, fearful. And then you fall into a minor depression or time of discouragement. And you say like Jehoshaphat, I don't have any might for this. And I would imagine a great deal of you came in here today not having the strength to face what you're going to face tomorrow. I've been there thousands of times. Just didn't come to the pulpit and talk about it every thousand times. I know to preach Christ, but I've been there. I've had dark nights of the soul so dark that you begin to wonder everything, including are you really saved? Is the book really true? But I've learned how to be steadfast. I've learned how to keep my eye on the ball. By the way, that's what we teach kids when they're playing baseball. Why do you miss the ball? Typically, you miss the ball because you took your eye off it at some point. The focus is not there. And so we have these things. And you have these things. And basically, everybody has these things. Now the question is, are you going to believe God in this season of your life? If you are in that category of distress, of stress, of discouragement, of depression, to believe God, this is not going to last forever. God will deliver me, and when I come forth, I will be stronger than I was when I went in. Amen. We shall see. Tough times is what makes us. You don't get by with a life of comfort and say, look at me, how strong I am. You've had it easy. Well, really, nobody has it easy, but some people think that we've had it easy. Well, it's okay for you to say, Pastor, because you've always had it easy. Are you kidding me? No one who follows Jesus has it, quote, easy, because he said it's a narrow way. The Apostle Peter, of course, the Holy Spirit writing through him, tells us, don't be, I'm paraphrasing, don't be shocked and surprised at the trials that has come to test your faith. It happens to every single man and woman of God, no exceptions. And you are not the exception. And you can't apply for an exemption. Because you will be denied. I don't want trials and tribulations. Just a blessing. Denied. Because God has his ways. And on certain things he does not negotiate. 
This is one of them. And all that would live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. We need to start calling it straight. Stop being, you know, mamby-pambying everybody and pampering them. You come in the church and they hand you a latte. But you don't like lattes. No problem. We'll get you whatever you want. Whipped cream. Well, you're not getting that here. You want a latte? Go up the street. You want whipped cream? Go over to Price Chopper. Here you're going to get the gospel. And that will deliver you. Here you're going to get Jesus Christ risen, alive, and coming again. And by the way, don't you bring a latte in this sanctuary. This is the old school. It's so old, even the old school looks to us for advice. That's right. So Auden wrote this poem, and here's how it ended. So the four people in the bar, three men and one woman, two of the men disappear. Finally, the man winds up at the woman's apartment, but nothing works out if you get the drift. Because he's so drunk, he just passes out. By the way, it had a great reception in 1948. That's six years before I was born. Because the people could identify with it. They could identify with the pathos of the characters that Auden wrote about. The age of anxiety. Well, I don't know where we are now. We're even past that. In fact, no, I do know. We have now boarded into the age of psychosis. If you are having difficulty knowing if you were a boy, speak to me after the service. I have an anatomy physiology book, a few of them, in my library, and I'll show you a picture and say, that's a boy, that's what you are. If you're a girl, well, we'll deal with that a little more delicately, but figure it out. Get yourself a book on anatomy and physiology and you'll figure it out. We're now into psychotic behavior, delusional behavior. It's delusional. Anyway, we went from anxiety to psychosis in just a century. So you're in distress today. What are you going to do about it? It's okay to explain your feelings to people. I think that that's a good thing, you know, to explain that you're going through troubles and ask, like I read in a letter, can you continue to pray for me? If you ask me to pray for you, I pray for you. I mean, actually pray for you. I get prayer requests frequently from strangers. I don't even know who they are. Just pray for them. God touch them, help them, strengthen them, heal them, and so on. But the question is, <clears throat> once again, so you're in distress today. You've been going through some hard times. You don't need a show of hands. I know some of your cases, and I know human nature, and I know statistics, and you're going through this distress, and you're in the age of psychosis, let alone the age of anxiety. What are you going to do? What will you do? Listen to these wise words. Again, I'm quoting from a secular source, Aeschylus, the Greek poet who pretty much founded the tragic, tragic plays and so forth that some poets in Greece are known for. And it's a very engaging statement. He wrote, even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own despair, against our will, comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. I want to let you know, when I used to preach in the prisons for seven years, I was in prison ministry, I preached to both men and women, men's unit, women's unit, but typically with the men, <clears throat> I would just tell them like it is. This is one of the things I used to tell them. I said, I know that you don't cry in population because you can't. Prison, jail can be a dangerous place. But I said, you know and I know you cry when you're in your cell when you're all alone. And, and man, you could hear a pin drop because they knew it was the truth. And it's true for you, some of you, been true for me. 
I don't display a lot of emotion except my passion for things, but the same for me. I cry when I'm alone. But I try to keep the grief pure, but the words of Aeschylus, even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. He's talking about the things that you go through. Well, I wouldn't use the word awful, and the writers of the Bible wouldn't use the word awful. He was a 6th century poet before the birth of Christ. But you get the gist that there's some things we cannot forget. The pain that people have caused us, that life has caused us, and it drops like a bleeding heart upon our own minds so that we cannot forget these things. But now, not the awful grace of God, but the grace of God reminds us that all things are working together for good to them that love God, and there will be a deliverance. And I'll go further and say this. Yeah, ultimately there'll be a deliverance. But there's a verse that we read from David where he says, I would have fainted if I didn't believe I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. When we get to heaven, as much as I know about heaven, there'll be no pain, no jails, none of these things. So we won't need as much, at least, there as we need right now. We need to believe that we will see God's deliverance in this world, come back to the sanctuary with a testimony. To be able to tell people, God is good on paper, but he's good in life, and I know it because I've seen it again and again and again and again. But when discouragement comes in, it can be an awful thing because that is the make or break point. Discouragement, easy to define, it's the lack of courage. You've been trying and trying and trying and trying and trying, and it has not worked out, not your way. As a missionary told a story that I think would um, open a window on this. As a country boy, he saw with his own eyes a team of horses pulling a massive load of logs, cut logs. And after just a short while, they couldn't pull the logs anymore. It was just too heavy. So the farmer just took some logs off. They couldn't pull that. Took some more logs off. They couldn't pull that. More logs, more logs until there was nothing on the wagon. And the horses couldn't pull it. But better said they wouldn't pull it because they became so discouraged that it got into their minds that there's no way we can lift this load even though now there was nothing behind them. That's what discouragement does. There's a fable told about Satan. who was selling all the tools that he uses to deceive and to seduce and to take down the Christian. Some he was selling very, very cheap. Some a little bit more expensive. And as the story goes, people were buying them. But then someone came upon one of his tools. And he says, oh, no, no, I don't sell that one. That, that's not for sale. That's discouragement. And when I use that tool and get into the minds of men and women, it is the most effective tool that I have. That's not for sale. Discouragement can put you in a place where you stand up and you say, I quit. I will not go any further. This is John chapter 6. I told you a great memory aid. John 6, 6, 6. When Jesus said, unless a man eat my flesh and drink my blood, he has no part of me. And all this, it says, and then the disciples, not the apostles, but then... His disciples walked with him no more. They said, Lord, this is a hard saying. That was it. That was the final straw that broke that camel's back where they said, we've had enough of this teaching. 
Give us the latte and the whipped cream. That's what we want. Jesus never gave them a latte and whipped cream and whatever else is being produced today as revival or evangelism. <laughs> he turned to the apostles and says, you want to go? So unusual. God allows you to make up your mind. That's called free will. Well, we know Peter's response. His first one to speak almost always. He said, where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. When Carnegie, Dale Carnegie, wrote his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, none of this was in it. <laughs> Tell them about the cross. Tell them that this is going to be a difficult trial, like the letter I read to you. Tell them this isn't going to be easy. No one wants to hear that. I don't want to hear that. You don't want to hear that. But that's the truth. That's the truth, my friend. If you're going to stand in Ephesians 6, and having done all to stand, you have to stand and withstand the trials, the stress, the distress, and what attends it often, not always, but often, the discouragement or the depression. Amen. You want to lock yourself in a room and turn out the lights, crawl up in the fetal position, and just stay there where you feel safe. Problem is, God didn't design his people just to go around feeling safe. He designed us to be fighters and soldiers and to put on the whole armor of God. Well, what does that imply? Are we really going to fight? Oh, you're going to fight. And you're going to be attacked. How did we ever get the notion that if we go and pray and say, Satan, we're coming after you. We don't say it that way, but that's what it means. We're going to attack the kingdom of hell. How did we ever get the idea that he wasn't going to attack back and come in places where we did not expect it? In every crowd, there's always a Jesus and a Judas that came from unexpected places. David wrote, he says, if it was somebody else, I could have withstood, but it was my own friend. It was someone I trusted. We went to the house of God together. That, my friend, is called discouragement, or at least reality. But what will you do? Will you be like the horses? Will you at least take a look behind you and realize that all the logs have been removed? Or will you stay in your seat of discouragement? Will you rise up and say, I am more than a conqueror because he said so, and trust his word, though you feel nothing, or worse, you still feel depressed and down and discouraged and defeated, and say that I will lay my claim on the word of God. Because feelings come and feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. I'll place my faith on the word of God. None else is worth believing. It's the words of Martin Luther. Feelings come and go. Sensations in your body, they rise and they fall. Study your body. It's called a sensation pulse. Like your heart has a pulse. I mean, presumably your heart has a pulse. <laughs> you, you can go to certain churches, but you know no one there has a pulse. Well, your body has a pulse. called a sensation pulse. In any case, today you're in that place of discouragement. You've lost your courage. Okay, it happens. To like everybody. But you cannot stay there. We sang a song that says, rise up. Rise up. Rise up out of your seat of discouragement and depression. Move the muscles. Move the legs. Open the Bible. Go talk to the Lord. I honestly don't have a lot of questions for God. Not here in heaven, yes, but not here. I just keep moving forward. Keep going forward. Somebody told me one time that the best thing for an athletic team is to have a great defense. I said, no, it's not. You've got to have a good offense. If you don't score points, you don't win. You don't win the game because you stop the opponent from scoring 100 points instead of they scored 90. 
You win by scoring more points than the other team, and you will not win your personal battles until you get on the offense and stop sitting there in discouragement. Though I'm sympathetic with you because I've been there. I don't even know how many times. How many times talked to my wife? Maybe I wasn't called to the ministry. Maybe I was never. Billy Graham went through it. Everybody. The prophets went through it. It happens to everybody. You're not unique. But all the winners, it's not that they're exempt from fear or trials. It's that they overcome them. They overcome them. So we go from this pattern I pointed out to you, from distress to either discouragement or to a place of, again, depression or just simply just you know, wanting to pack it in. And then the real victory comes when you let go. Well, that's the beginning of the victory. Many of the plans of a man's heart, this is a paraphrase, but many of the plans of a man or a woman's heart, but it's the decision of the Lord that abides. Can't say I've always been happy in the beginning of something that God has introduced me to. I'm not all that enthused about it. But then after the time goes by, sometimes years, I realize this was the right path that God chose for me. Of course, the general path for all of us is the right path, but it's not an easy one. And stop listening to preachers that give you the implication, or imply rather, that it is. And stop listening to preachers that says you should have an even bigger home, three homes, four homes, and a Learjet to get you there. It is heresy. It's more than just a mistake. It's heretical. That's not what this gospel teaches. It doesn't say you should be poor and be a beggar. That's not in the gospel either. It's something in between. The common, modest life that Albert Einstein talked about. Biblically speaking, he says, be content with the things that you have. I actually like my home. I really do. Oh, I look at homes that I think are nicer and they're placed nicer. They're not on Route 30 where I got to hear all these motorcycles and trucks and boom and crash and music that is louder than a Learjet. But I do. I like my home and I'm grateful for all the things God has given to me. I truly am. I don't want more. I don't want to hear some preaching about you need more. I don't need any more. And neither do you. Also, you're, no, no, I'm in debt. Well, God is able to do for you what he's done for my friend if you play by the rules. Amen. Which, by the way, does include hard work. But beside that, God will work and make your efforts multiply because he's God. You now have to learn how to let go. Remember I told you the story about the monkey? He sees the apple inside of a jar. He wants the apple. Puts his hand in the jar. Grabs the apple. Now he can't get his hand down. What's the solution? If he lets go of the apple, he's free, but he don't have the apple. Puts his hand back in the jar and he grabs the apple. He's got the apple, but he can't get free. You ought to be glad. I know that I am. You never got certain things that you asked for from God. Because he says, you know, you're going to grab an apple, but you're going to be in bondage. Could be anything. Could be anything at all. Well, the solution, one solution, we just smash the jar, but that's not on God's program. <laughs> you let go. And to finish the story in my own way, all of a sudden you realize that right over there, God has put an apple tree. Amen. An apple tree. Now you don't have to be in bondage to all the reports of men. And I tell you, and I mean this sincerely, people I know who once served the Lord, that now go around, that the Bible is in their home with their hands somewhere, 
And maybe they don't know it, and maybe they do, and they won't admit it because they don't have the humility to realize you're off the path. You're not on this path anymore. I find such empathy. I feel such compassion and pity that they're missing out with the book in their hands. Of all these exceeding great and precious promises, I talk to you a lot about fear. That's a big subject for me, as you know, on my show, The Oasis, because so many people suffer from it. I mean, when are you going to get tired of being the cowardly lion in The Wizard of Oz? He's scared of his tail, literally. He's scared of everything that jumps at him. They always got to calm him down until, you know, he magically gets the badge of courage. Well, Christ gives you deliverance from these things. You're going to be tempted with them. Yes, we all are. But we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony by this book. Now it's time to let go. Sisters, please, whatever you do, do not attack me after this service when I say what I'm about to say. Because it's against the law and I will press charges. (laughs) Women have this way of looking at men and realizing they're not perfect, but I'll change them. Then they're in an office like mine, crying because so-and-so is just not what he ought to be in all of this here. Well, it was, let's say, a mistake to look at the imperfect man and think, I'll marry him. And those bad faults, they're going to change. Now you're in constant fights or whatever. Now he's in a position that he's just not going to move, and then you go back and forth. Let's look at it the other way. So a man sees a woman, and she's beautiful. But he don't know what's inside. He doesn't realize what he's getting into. Oh, and children. Oh, they're a blessing when they first come out. Oh, that's so, so cute. Oh, look at oh, the baby. At 16, you're screaming at them. Where are you going? It's none of your business where I'm going. And on and on. But you forget that that's not, you know, God is so wise. You know, he says, hey, you know, come together, have a baby. I mean, he has to have a sense of humor. Because even the Bible doesn't provide us with all the things that we face in raising children. And tragedies happen to people, but they don't happen to me, not to my family. I got the Bible. You got the Bible? Read it again. Samuel's sons were so degenerate, so profligate, that they couldn't be appointed to be anything, so they, had a, a, they wanted a king, give them a king, God said. God, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. We have Eli. We have all these people that didn't have perfect children. Why? Because they make up their own minds. And you, my friend, who are married, are married to a sinner. Saved by grace, but a sinner who has flaws. It's time to let go and pray. I mean, why worry when you can pray and let go? Because according to Herbert Benson and others, you're going to have, that's just from a human standpoint, not a divine, a breakthrough when you let go of it. You walk away from it. Have you ever had that happen to you? You're so frustrated with something, you just, you know, I'm done with this, I don't know. And then you take in a shower. And it's all of a sudden, hey! And the idea just comes to you. That's just, that's not even supernatural. That's just how things work ordinarily. My father used to be able to figure things out, or things came to him when he was sleeping. All of a sudden, the solution, it's happened to you. You're laying on your bed. You're distracted from your problem. And there's physiological reasons for that, but I'm not talking about just physiology. I'm talking about God, who is ever on the throne. He never moves. He's watching everything all the time. All the time. You're distressed, he's not. You're discouraged, he's not. And he does not need to be delivered, you do. It's time to let go. This is a difficult thing. It's not easy. 
Remember, I always remind you there's a difference between something that's simple. What I'm telling you is simple, but it's not easy. If you watch my show, The Oasis, I demonstrated this point with a push-up. Here you are in a plank position, and your feet are together. Your head is out just a few feet ahead of you. You come down, chest touches the floor. You push back up, push-up. Simple. <laughs> I've known some who couldn't do one. And then you do two and three. But it's not easy to do. I didn't say quit. I said, let go. Let go. When you do, you'll find that God will give you that grace that Aeschylus wrote about in your pain, in your grief. When are people going to simply let go and allow God to be God when it concerns the Lord's day and everything else that belongs to God? When are people who profess Christ going to learn that you've been doing it your way and it's not working and you're reading the Bible? Well, I don't know the answer to that, but I just know for me, this book has never failed because God wrote it. As long as I apply it. And at times, I have to let go. Bringing us here 18 years ago, which we're going to celebrate soon, I had to let go of everything else. I had to let go of 18 years worth of work because of the treachery that was going on inside my own church with some of my own close friends. I came here and I go through this with you once in a while and the ceiling is drippy and leaking and we have uh, no chairs and all of that. And I told you 18 years ago, this one thing, for those of you who are here, I said, as long as we have this Bible, we're gonna be all right. And we paid off the mortgage in just a couple of years, three years, whatever it was, and the chairs, and we have all the accoutrements except lattes. <laughs> new ceiling, new roof, all these things, because God is good. And he never changes. When are you going to let go so God can step in? See, the more you're holding on to the apple in the jar, God is saying, fine. You want to do it your way? He allows you to do it your way. Now, don't answer me yes or no, but are you happy yet? You got the apple. I got the apple. You got your hand stuck in the jar. You don't have an apple. You got nothing. You're trapped. You're in bondage. And you won't let go. And, you know, you failed to see that right over here, but you never saw it. It's an apple tree. That's God. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Every river and stream and everything in the universe belongs to God. And it says it's his pleasure to give us the kingdom freely. Freely. Let me read a few verses before I finish on deliverance. Listen, Psalm 50 verse 15. And call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver thee and thou shalt glorify me. Second Chronicles 33, 12 and 13. And when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed unto him and he was entreated of him and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. That is such a, that's a good verse. Look it up. Second Chronicles 33, 13. Then he knew that this is real. If you're a theoretical Christian, you don't know that this is real. But if you've tried God over and over and over again, and God never has failed you, and I'm getting close to 50 years in ministry, a couple of years, I'll be 50 years in ministry, and God has never failed, and guess what? That teaches me. He never will. Amen. As long as I play by the rules, the principles, the laws, the belief, and all that, he never will. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. Psalm 91, 15. 
He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. Job 22, 27. He had a lot of problems. Thou shalt make thy prayer unto him and he shall hear thee. And thou shalt pay thy vows. Meaning God would deliver you. Psalm 7, 7, verse 2. In the day of my trouble I sought the Lord. My sore ran in the night and ceased not. My soul refused to be comforted, but God delivers him. Psalm 91, 15. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. You in trouble today? He will hear you. Psalm 107, verse 6 and 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. And then verse 19, and I'll finish. 107, 6, Psalms. Then they cried to the Lord in their troubles, and he delivered them out of their distresses, and led them forth by the right way, that they might go to his city of habitation. 107, 8. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Verse 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and then verse 19. He satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness, such as sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, being bound in affliction and iron because they rebelled against the words of God and condemned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down and there was none to help. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble and he saved them out of their distresses. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble and he saved them out of their distresses. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble and he bringeth them out of their distresses. It has a purpose, my friends. And there's a pattern. At what level you are, I can't say. But God will deliver you if you keep your eyes on him and trust him. Play the man if you are a man. And play the woman of God if you are a woman. Stand your ground in the Lord and refuse to move. And watch the deliverance of the Lord. That's the instructions given to Moses. Red Sea's in front of them, can't go that way. Armies of Pharaoh behind them, can't go that way. And the people are all yelling at Moses, you did this, you led us into this, it's your fault, you're the pastor. And he didn't know what to do. And God said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. You know our country is in a mess, a real mess. But if we will be the real deal, and people around the country and around the world will also be the real deal, we cry out to the Lord, God will hear us in our distress and deliver us nationally. But we must play by the rules. We must be in this book and be the real deal. My question now is this, are you going to have a breakdown or a breakthrough? That decision is up to you. I've made my decision. I've watched people have a breakdown. I mean, a nervous breakdown. It's not pretty. It's not pretty. To see some have a break with reality, a psychotic break. It's not pretty. But man, you and I, I mean, we're able to go to God and say, no, I'm going to touch the hem of your garment. And if I can touch the hem of your garment, I will be healed. This story is told by another pastor, a Presbyterian pastor who had a wedding. It was the biggest wedding they had ever had in their church. Anyway, during the wedding ceremony, they offered communion. And he began to explain, like I do every week, about the blood of Christ and what it cost the Lord to get us there and all that. So in their denomination, the Presbyterian denomination, he said, now all of you who are believers and are baptized, come on up and partake in communion. But much to his surprise, the whole place came up. 
Everybody. A Jewish couple came up and they said, you know, we know we're not supposed to be here, but when you spoke those words about Jesus, we couldn't help but to step forward. Muslim couple from Lebanon, back in the days when Lebanon was a real mess, they said, well, our children just started walking forward. We follow them. We know we're Muslims, but those words about Jesus. You see, it's Jesus. The Jesus of the book that attracts people. Alphonse Calabrese was a psychiatrist, a Freudian psychiatrist. Had all the big clients, all the actors, actresses, the big shots. He was doing another paper on mass hypnosis from preachers. He went to study Billy Graham with his wife and seven children. They went because they were invited to the crusade. He went to study how this man manipulates the minds of people. All of a sudden, when Billy Graham said, now all of you, wherever you're seated, come on down. Much to his chagrin, his wife and seven kids were walking down for the altar call. And he couldn't help himself. He said, I was just attracted. Walked down there, saved, born again, with his wife and his seven children. Went on to write books about the power of Christ and the power of the gospel. You, my friends, you need to pass through your trial. Because when you pass through the waters, it will not overflow you. When you go through the fire, it won't even touch you. That's what this book says. He'll bring you out. You'll be delivered. And no one's going to have to say, you better go out and tell people about Jesus. Because no one's going to be able to stop you from talking about Jesus. And that's the truth. Father, we bless you this morning that we have such a great privilege to know the Son of God. I pray today, God, here in this sanctuary, and as we reach the culmination of the ages, we see more and more people come to Christ in a genuine way. They're not looking for money. They're not looking for fame and riches and all this garbage that we have being spewed out of these pulpits we have. But they're coming for Christ for eternal life. Coming for Christ for strength and peace and the fruit of the Spirit. God, we pray that you would touch and continue to pour out your spirit upon all of us as we go through our distresses and discouragements and depressions to come out with deliverance and be able to say, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. We bless you and praise you this morning for all these things. While our heads are bowed, eyes are closed just quickly. I said earlier during the message, you know, and I said this in prayer before I came out here. I said, God, you know, touch the people's hearts. I always pray this prayer because I said, only you know who really believes. I don't know. I can make an educated guess, but just between you and God. Today, do you really know Jesus? Open the door. Invite him in. Just Jesus, come into my heart. Be my Lord, my Lord and my Savior. Not just Pastor Barnett's. My Lord, my Savior. And watch what happens. It's the power of God. It's the work of God. You need to be rededicated to the Lord. This is the time to do it. Say, Lord, I'm like Peter. I'm a bit behind here because of my discouragement, but I'm going to walk with you side by side. All this week, remember to love God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all that you have. And don't forget to love one another. Don't skip that part. Because Jesus said to the Pharisee, he knew what the two great commandments were. He says, you're very close to the kingdom. You can be close and not get in. You want to be in. We bless you, Father, and thank you for all these good things and for this day that you have made, that we can rest in you and be reminded and be exhorted and be taught and hopefully be encouraged. I give you all the praise and glory this morning, Father, in Jesus' mighty name. Can you all say amen? Amen. Amen.